A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, starting with verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the cities that have been devastated for generations. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. A reading from the second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 5, starting with verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. A man named John was sent from God. He came for testimony, to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to him to ask him, who are you? He admitted and did not deny it, but admitted, I am not the Christ. So they asked him, what are you then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you, so we can give an answer to those sent to us? What do you have to say for yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said, some Pharisees were also sent. They asked him, then why do you baptize if you are not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but there is one among you whom you do not recognize the one who is coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. This happened in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. 
the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. It's good to be with you all this morning. It's a special day. Uh, it is always wonderful to celebrate Advent with you, this season of anticipation, of longing. Today is the third Sunday of Advent, traditionally called Gaudete Sunday. There's no word that I ever say that makes me uh, more aware of my Oklahoma accent than when I say Gaudete. Um, <laughs> Gaudete means rejoice. And in the midst of waiting and even suffering, we rejoice. We look back on what God has done for us, and we celebrate. Now, this may seem strange to us, celebrating while we wait. But the Bible is full of stories that recognize simultaneously that God has already arrived, and even as he is here, he is still, in another sense, not yet here. <laughs> the canticle Sam read today is the Magnificat from Luke 1, 46 through 55, which certainly illustrates both the theme of rejoicing and the theme of anticipation at the same time. So Mary's song is so fascinating, and it's in line with the prophets, but it plays around with time. So we're asked the question as we read this and as we hear it, is Mary celebrating what has happened in the proclamation of the angel to her or in God's past faithfulness to the story of Israel? Is that what she's celebrating? God, you have always been faithful. Is she celebrating what is happening in her physical body at the moment? Or is she celebrating what will happen when this kingdom comes to birth in the child of Jesus? I think the answer is yes to all of those things. Like Mary responds to God's calling, we are invited to respond to the presence of God's word in our midst. In our Old Testament reading today, the prophet says, there is one who will come and will bring about the deliverance of his people. Now, as Christians, we look back and we hear these words from the prophet Isaiah, and we hear them as pointing to Jesus. So Luke 4 tells the story of Jesus reading this Old Testament passage as part of the liturgy in the synagogue. It's actually kind of a mashup that he reads of different passages together, but it's consistent here. So he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus says this, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So imagine that for a moment. Imagine how people receive Jesus's words. He reads the Bible and then he says, this is me. This is me this is talking about. Jesus came proclaiming a new world and a new society has dawned in him. He announces that the world is a new place because he is here. This is the good news we hear from Isaiah. No matter what it looks like outside, a new day has dawned. What is this kingdom about? The oppressed receive this good news. The brokenhearted, their wounds are bound up. The captives hear that they're set free. And this is the year of God's favor. This is the joyful news in which we rejoice. We can rejoice today, even in pain, in grief. The call to rejoice is not to ignore those circumstances, but to hear God's proclamation and to know that our current circumstances are not the whole story or the end of the story. In fact, Joy and justice go together. 
In order for true healing to come, that thing we anticipate and that thing we celebrate, in order for true healing to come, brokenness needs to be revealed and to be dealt with. The good news for those who have been oppressed is there's a new king who will make things right. And that means even dealing with the oppressors. Now, scandalously, the gospel is ultimately good news for oppressed and the oppressor. But it first requires our awareness to sin. The good news of Jesus exposes and compels us to come to grips with those places in our life and the places in the world that do not reflect the kingdom of God. And Jesus says that in him, things will be put right. Verse 3 says, They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, is what verse 5 says. This is who we are as the people of God. Christians are oaks of righteousness. Or we could even say in in light of the Christian story, we are oaks of resurrection. Oaks represent stability and purpose. Now, I've probably told this story before, but it just really fires me up. (laughs) In the Ethiopian highlands, it has been this way for a thousand years that churches are surrounded by forests. So these churches take place and they always have forests around them. The church or the forest is kind of like the clothing for the church. And it's designed to resemble the Garden of Eden, which is just so beautiful that the church is in and of itself and where it's situated, it's to resemble the Garden of Eden. So all over the Ethiopian highland, there are these little forests. And when you fly over it, you can see all these little dots of forest everywhere on the Ethiopian highland. And in the center of those forests, almost all of them, is a church. The church has become the safeguard and the strength and the protector of these forests. Now, over the centuries, the entire Ethiopian highland has become deforested. It was at one time, 100 years ago, it was 45% forest. Now it is 5% forest. So presently, the church forests are really the only forests that remain. These churches, these places that are surrounded by the forest. Lately, as the deforestation has continued, the churches have begun putting up barriers outside of the church forest to say, no, no, no further. We are not going to allow this deforestation, this exploitation to go any further. Now notice this, the barriers are not barriers to entry. They're not uh, keep people out with these barriers. No, they're barriers to say, no, you can't do this any further. We're going to protect this. The church forests have also now become a safeguard of biodiversity in Ethiopia. So in the future, whenever they, they plant more forests, which they've started to do, they have to start with the seedbed that comes from the church. The seedbed of the church. The church is the seedbed for the new ecosystem that's going to grow. in the the Ethiopian highlands. I think about that, and then I think about verse four. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. This is an image of who the church is called to be. We are forest people, garden people. We're the mighty oaks. We live by a different kingdom And in doing so, the church becomes life for the whole world. Now, as we look at the world today and we see so much injustice, so much cruelty, so much division, the people of God stand as proclaimers of a new kingdom. God has come. And in doing so, we become rebuilders, replanters. Now, our epistle reading today gives 
eight seemingly simple commands to the early church in Thessalonica. The first is celebration. The church is told to rejoice always. We rejoice because of what God has done. Now, this can be confusing. Why is Paul telling people to rejoice? Is he telling them to be joyful? Because you can't really tell people to feel stuff, right? <laughs> that seems oppressive. No, rejoice for Paul is not a feeling. It refers to publicly celebrating. It's therefore rightly connected to prayer and to giving thanks. So he says, throw a feast, throw a celebration because of what God has done. There's this wonderful Jewish poem that is associated with Passover, and it has been for a long time, and it's called Dayenu. Has anybody heard of this before? Dayenu? Okay. And it means approximately, that word means approximately, it would have been enough. What the poem does, it's often sung, and it recounts the many things that God has done for his people throughout history. And then it basically says, if God just did that, that would be enough. So if he did this, but he didn't do this other thing that he did, that would be enough in and of itself. So for example, if he had split the sea for us and had not taken us through it on dry land, it would have been enough for us. If he had supplied our needs in the desert for 40 years and not given us manna, it would have been enough for us. If he had fed us manna and not given us Sabbath or Sabbat, it would have been enough for us. This idea is so critical for people of faith. We are a people who consistently give thanks, even in times where we do not have what we need or desire. God has already been incredibly generous and faithful to us. And as Christians, there is something for which we can rejoice, even if it is only the redemption of the world in our Lord Jesus Christ and nothing more. If that's all we give thanks for, that would have been enough. And we rejoice and we pray. Now, Paul says we should pray continually or pray without ceasing. What does that mean? <laughs> does that mean that we're to be in a constant state of prayer? Well, even the strictest pietists of Judaism didn't pray all day. They prayed regularly and they prayed faithfully. Think about this in the context of a relationship with God. If prayer is just an obligation or a duty, it sounds like an insurmountable obstacle to pray without ceasing. There's no way I could do that. There's no way I could accomplish that. The call to pray without ceasing is to be continually mindful of God and remember one's interconnection with God. It is, of course, impossible for me, for you, for any of us to engage in the physical aspects of prayer without ceasing. We can't move our lips all the time in prayer. We can't kneel all the time. But think about this, it is possible for the community to continue in prayer, especially as we think about the church throughout the world today. We are a community which prays without ceasing. The church is also told to give thanks in all circumstances. So gratitude seems to be at the heart of what it means to be human. When we give thanks, we are becoming more of who we were created to be. Gratitude, that posture of thanksgiving, is the posture we were created for. Then the church is told a couple things about the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit, and do not despise the words of the prophets. I have some baggage with this, <laughs> with this verse. Um, growing up in a charismatic uh, tradition, do not quench the Holy Spirit. 
is usually something we as worship leaders were told um, that we were doing if we stopped the song too quickly, right? And that's how we interpreted this verse. Um, but that's not what Paul has in mind here. Even as we as the church are dependent on the past, what it's saying is here, recognize God is active and working in your midst. God is present with you. Listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. Even as we are a people oriented towards what God has done in the past, and we here at this church, we emphasize the traditions of the church and where we come from. That's who we are. It's, it's so important and imperative to who we are. And at the same time, we realize God is not in the past. God is with us here now. Listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. This also assumes somehow we're able to do such a thing, <laughs> that we're invited to participate in the Spirit's work. This means the Spirit's presence in our midst is not like possession, not like a demon or something that takes over. We are invited to participate in the Spirit's work with our own free will. This doesn't mean the Spirit's under our control, of course, but somehow we are participants in the Spirit's work by grace. And then the last three commands that Paul gives are about serious moral decisions. The church is to test everything. Cling tight to what is good. So everything that comes in, everything you experience, test it. I think about in the Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo Baggins recalls something his older cousin Bilbo used to say. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step into the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there is no knowing where you might be swept off to. That's, it's a funny line. Some people laugh at it. <laughs> Thanks, appreciate that. So no, but this idea is just be careful. Test everything that you experience, right? Everything that you walk with and then cling to the good stuff. And then the stuff that's evil, run away from it, Paul says. Yet ultimately, this is about aligning ourselves with God. It's not about achieving something on our own. Paul ends this by saying, he who calls you is faithful and will accomplish it. And then in our gospel reading, yes, again this week, we hear more about John the Baptist. Again, this may not be what we expect to hear in church in December. We're expecting stories about Mary and Joseph and angels and shepherds, but we don't quite get there just yet. Today, we continue to hear about the scraggly prophet who is preparing the way for the Lord. Good luck finding John the Baptist on any Christmas cards or on Advent calendars. Fleming Rutledge says that she wishes that we'd add John the Baptist to our Advent calendars, to where when we open it up, instead of a piece of chocolate, he kind of jumps out and says, who are you to not flee from the coming wrath? <laughs> It'd be a little different, right? John's not cuddly in any way. He's not meek and mild. Uh, do yourself a favor later today and search for John the Baptist icons. He is scary downright scary. In John's gospel, different John, but the writer John's gospel, John the Baptist is described as a witness to the light. Now, we've already been told that this light is the life that was in Jesus. It shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Advent is good news, but it is the good news which startles us awake. It is someone flipping on the lights in the middle of the night, and our eyes have not yet adjusted. It's good news, but we're not ready for it. Now, light enters our eyes in a couple different ways. The first way is through a light source, like a light bulb that creates light. When this happens, 
the light travels to your eye and your brain interprets this signal as light. But there's a second way that we see light, and it's reflected light. So if you're looking at an object, the light from somewhere, from the source, reflects off the pencil or whatever it is, and then into your eye. Think about it this way. Christ is, Christ is the light source, the source of light. And we perceive that through the eye of our heart, but it doesn't stop there. So the Christian faith is not just about, I saw the light. That's part of it. I saw the light. Like, it's part of the story. I see Christ and who he is, and I perceive that. But it doesn't stop there. It also means everything around us looks different in light of Christ. There's that reflected light. The whole world has changed. The systems and structures of our world look different. Our neighbors look different in light of Christ. Leonardo da Vinci said, a painter should begin every canvas with a wash of black because all things in nature are dark except we're exposed by the light. In the Quaker tradition, there's a saying, when they pray for someone, they say they are holding them to the light. The prayer is that everything in the person's life, every society, every structure would be realigned by the light of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote the following from his prison cell. In me, there is darkness, but with you, there is light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me. I am feeble in heart, but with you, there is help. I am restless, but with you, there is peace. In me, there is bitterness, but with you, there is patience. I do not understand your ways, but you know the way for me. The light comes in darkness. The coming triumph of God made manifest happens precisely in the darkness of the present evil age. That's why we've said every week, Advent begins in the dark. Darkness and the hope of light both stand side by side. We can't jump over the darkness bit. And that's the whole reason why we emphasize the difference between the Christmas or the Christian season of Advent and the Christmas season. Culturally, today, we rush to Christmas. You know, that's what we're all pointed towards. We're rushing towards it, but sometimes that's just sentimentality. Flannery O'Connor defines sentimentality as skipping lightly over the fall into an early arrival at a mock state of innocence. One might say the rush to Christmas is representative of a desire to numb our pain or numb the pain of the world rather than healing it. Throughout the reading, John the Baptist is constantly pointing away from himself and to Jesus. So in verses 6 to 8, he is the witness, the one who gives evidence about Jesus. And then in verses 19 through 28, he responds to questions about his identity. What's the main thing he wants to clear up? I am not the Messiah, he says. Now, I'm a big fan of the NBA, and I realize my sports analogies only go so far with this church, but bear with me, okay? Lately, when a player dominates a game in the NBA, he takes over and he will shout, I am him! That's the big thing, I am him! took me a while to figure out what, he's, what they're talking about. But likewise, when an analyst sees a player doing that, the analyst may say, he is him. 
It's a way of saying he's that guy. He's the man. He's taken over. Now, many of the people at the time of Jesus were expecting a Messiah. They were expecting a king, a him from the house of the line of David who would make things right, who would restore Israel to her rightful place. And John the Baptist makes it clear, I am not him. And it continues. They ask him, okay, you're not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? But John doesn't identify himself with Elijah. This gets confusing because elsewhere in the New Testament, John is associated with Elijah. But here, the purpose is pushing the attention on Jesus and away from himself. Then they ask, are you a prophet? Still, John deflects. He says, he's merely a voice. John quotes Isaiah 40, which we read last week. And if we remember from the larger context, the prophet says, people are like grass which withers but the word of God stands forever. There's a connection to John 1, the very beginning, where Jesus is described as the word, the word. So John says he's just a voice, that's it, pointing to the word. Then John goes as far as to say he's not even fit to tie Jesus' sandal. With first uh, 21st century ears, we hear this and we might think John's just saying he's not fit to even do a menial task for Jesus. But there's another historical practice which stands in the background of this. It's called a leveret marriage. When a man dies and his brother marries the man's wife in order to keep the family land and continue the family line. We see this several times in scripture, most clearly in the book of Ruth. And in the practice, the man's brother, so the guy's died, and then the man's brother has the opportunity to marry uh, the woman and keep the line going. So the man's brother or kinsman may refuse that, though. He may refuse to marry the widow. And then what happens in the process is he unties the sandal strap of of someone else as a key moment in the process. And when he does that, it releases the man and any of his brothers from marrying the widow. So perhaps, as Gregory the Great argued, John is declaring himself not just beneath Christ, but unworthy to displace him as Israel's true husband. He's unworthy to even be considered as the redeemer. He can't even be considered the one who's going to bring restoration to God's people. John says, no, I'm more like the best man. I'm not the bridegroom. And as John does this, it's amazing. He stands as a brother of Israel and a brother of humanity. For none of us are able to do what Jesus is able to do. It's not about us. It is about him. Today, we're called to rejoice. The good news of the gospel is liberation, recovery, and comfort. So for those of us who are hurting today, the good news is that God is with you. Even in circumstances that seem out of control are overwhelming. Many of us will be around family over the next couple of weeks. And I know that even though that often brings a lot of joy for us, it also brings up some of our deepest insecurities and pains and even fears. So no matter how messy the situation is in your family life or relationships, you don't go into it alone. You're not alone. Hear this today. God has good things for you. Your brokenness has been bound up. You are free from your captivity. This is the year of the Lord's favor. You are not alone. People of God, 
You are mighty oaks, even when you feel like you're about to snap. May we as the church be forest people, cultivating, restoring, and renewing the world around us with the love of Christ as we point to him. And as we do, may we remember that we are simply witnesses. John the Baptist is a witness, and in that way, he stands for all of us. Our lives stands as light, not the source of light, but light reflected. May we stand in the light, hold others to the light, even as we embrace the truth that we are unfit. God is doing a work beyond what we can see in and through our lives. This work is beyond our wildest expectations. And the good news is we don't have to have it all figured out now. The calling is to trust to wait, and to rejoice. Amen.